Soviets had been winning these tournaments, and I thought it would be good for America, for democracy, to have an American win it. Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of State. Hello, and welcome to Historica Esoterica. I am your host, Matt K. Ultra, joined as ever by... Roswell. And, uh... As a, this is a historic episode, as we are joined by my twin brother, who we have decided to call Mike K Ultra. Uh, we, we hail from the K Ultra family. It's Italian. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Michael, how you doing? Good, good. Thank you for yeah. joining us, Mike. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, happy to be I here. I know that you you have listened in the past, which I appreciate. Oh yeah. yes, I'm probably your biggest fan. Mainly because I, I don't see yeah. that many other views on YouTube, so I, I just use that as my reference point. <laughs> Rude, um, but fair. Yeah, I think we we do fine on the other platforms. Uh, no need to dox our numbers. We don't want to make anybody else jealous. Oh, yeah, yeah. of course not. Um, it's below 100, but above 50. <laughs> there we go. 1,000. Yeah. 1,000, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, today, we are, we're going to be discussing uh, a figure who... His, who looms large in uh, his his particular field? Uh, Bobby Fischer, of course, the prodigious chess player. Uh, but before we before we like hop into it, uh, Michael, do you want to tell us just a little bit about uh, why I had you in particular come on for this one? Aside from nepotism, uh, yeah, of course. Um, well, I'd say that nepotism probably tops the list, but you know, I'm coming in as a close second <laughs> um, <laughs> in the K Ultra family as we are frequently <laughs> referred to. Um, I'm known as the uh, the biggest chess fan. Uh, I like to play the game a lot. I've been uh, studying and trying to improve for this last year. And along with that, I've kind of just taken an interest um, in some of the more historic figures, some of their top games and stuff. And so it's kind of hard to do that and go over this these games without also kind of picking up on some of these little stories and personalities that are behind these players. Because you realize that even though they're all top level, I think sometimes people get this misconception about the game where it requires the same robotic play from everyone. But in reality, the uh, strengths that you get from these different players come from their different strategies and different approaches. And so uh, uh, just from our discussions, I think we realize that it'll be kind of a fun one to talk about just this particular character of Bobby Fischer. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. very interesting. Uh, and I'm sure, Matt, that there was nothing strange about his life. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> that could warrant it being on this podcast. He was just yeah. If normal... there is, <laughs> if there is one thing that the listener knows about Bobby Fischer, it is probably that he lived a famously very normal life after right. playing chess. Uh, 
but yeah, no, I, um, so I'm, I'm much less talented in the world of chess than, uh, Michael is, uh, I've stopped playing with him because he just is too good and defeats me every time, uh, in an embarrassingly quick amount of time. You can always play down a queen or I could play down, yeah. a queen, but, but Matt refuses that too, just because, uh, that would be too embarrassing. So. Yeah, the handicap. That's the same as him saying, like, yeah, I'll play blindfolded in another room and still get mate. Like, um, but I, I share uh, Michael's interest in, uh, you know, the personalities involved, uh, particularly as in this time period. Uh, there was a lot of Cold War stuff going on as well. Uh, right. There was a lot of politics bubbling under the surface of chess. Uh, Roswell, did you? What? How familiar were you with the world of chess before this episode? Um, zero percent because I'm not a dork, but <laughs> no, <I'm just> kidding. <laughs> okay. I, uh, I had no idea that chess was such a big deal to so many people. Uh, my conception of chess was it was a fun game I would play with my grandpa. I didn't think that there was, I didn't know it was also a sport, um, <laughs> but I knew, I mean, obviously I'd heard that there was like some more higher level chess. I didn't realize mm-hmm. it was that big of a deal, especially in the time period we're looking at, um, it's insane to me. But uh, I actually had heard the name Bobby Fischer a few times before because I think he's so ubiquitous in American culture uh, mm-hmm. that it's kind of hard to avoid, which is very interesting considering it's such a niche thing, in my opinion. Uh, and I live under a rock, and I had heard about yeah. Bobby Fischer. <laughs> I think that says uh, something about the importance of uh, at least one event in his life on American culture and American history. Yeah, and um, you know, as we go through things, I'm I'm gonna ask you guys a couple questions at a few different points about uh, Bobby Fischer's particular relationship to chess and how I think undeniably it caused a massive uptick in interest in chess on the American side of things. Um, but Michael, before I sort of like jump into his biography, uh, did you have anything more you wanted to say on things? Uh, sorry, you just mean like just in general about what we're going to be talking about or yeah just sort of a general um, like a, a a preface if you would yeah, to the, uh, um, the novel we're about to read um i think it will probably be hard to uh translate or convey uh entirely like just in this little podcast but i would add that um the more that you look at his games in particular uh the more evident that becomes that his personality really did uh, bleed through into his gameplay, and so it's just oh, yes. really interesting to look at. I'll just, I'll just throw that in there, and uh, hopefully we can illustrate that to some extent. But mm-hmm. awesome, yeah. Uh, I'm just going to start with some. Actually, no, I have to be honest. Uh, we just spent maybe 45 minutes waiting for my roommate <laughs> to finish playing music loudly in the shower. So if we if we seem a little little out of it, it's because we have now spent an hour trying to get started on this podcast. Which we will now. <clears throat> yeah. So we, I'm just going to start with some uh, basic biographical information, and we're going to jump into his early games. Uh, and uh, you know, either of you guys feel free to chime in uh, pretty much whenever. Uh, okay. So he was born in 1943 in Chicago, Illinois, to one uh, Regina Vender Fisher. Uh, Gerhardt Fisher is listed on his birth certificate, uh, but it's widely believed that he was not his actual father and his actual father was the jewish hungarian mathematician uh paul niem 
Nyeni, I believe is how you pronounce that. Uh, quick sidebar about him, by the way. He was a socialist in his early days, but left Germany in the 30s because it was not a great time to be Jewish and in Germany uh, in the 1930s. Uh, and so he ended up getting recruited into the Naval Ordnance Laboratory in White Oak, Maryland, which is just... I couldn't hmm. find anything that he was doing that was raising yeah. my eyebrows, but he got recruited by the bomb-making factory. Like, <laughs> just make like the big cartoon bombs with the big yeah, fuse exactly. going into it. Um, so that's just an interesting thing. Uh, so... Regina was a Swiss immigrant and the daughter of two Polish Jews. And I would, at this point, like to note the only reason that I point out that both of his parents are Jewish, because ordinarily that is not something I try to focus no. on. Right. Not that kind of podcast. No. Um, but just sort of put a pin in that part of his heritage because it will it'll become important later. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to be anti-Semitic, but no, no. Oh no, boy, no. Bobby is. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so Regina was also uh, a communist, and the FBI had like a huge file I, on her. I was about uh, to ask you about that, Matt, because I found that very interesting in the documentary I watched. They kind of breezed past that, but they're like, "Yeah, she was a communist and and kind of an activist." You know, they showed her at many sit-ins with signs mm -hmm. and stuff talking about yeah. ending war, which you know, good thing to talk about ending. But like, um. I, I, so do you know anything more on that? Because they sort of just breezed so, past it. I, I didn't find a ton about her activities because honestly, I didn't look super closely. Um, he and his mother had a very strained relationship uh, from a very young age, which they actually they talked about in the documentary. Just a side note, uh, the one source I think that we all shared this episode is a 2011 documentary called Bobby Fisher Against the World. Uh, and it's pretty good. There's a couple things about it I didn't love. We'll get into those when we get to them. Um, but as a general source, uh, I think it's very interesting and very good. Um, but yeah, so they get into it a little bit, right? She was, uh, she worked two jobs for very long, uh, from a very early age. And so she would just leave Bobby and his older sister, um, whose name escapes me. They would just be left unattended for very long periods of time. Um, but yeah, I couldn't find her, like, I couldn't find any evidence of her, like, know actively like plotting to take down the american government unfortunately because uh, that would have been pretty <laughs> cool bad. Yeah, yeah i know they mentioned that like there was f like folders and folders upon her that the fbi had which to me kind of struck me as odd because like if you've got someone being communist and they're just kind of like going to rallies and stuff i don't know how the fbi makes writes up their documents but folders on folders usually means they're up to something nefarious but yeah i mean i was, was also say, 60s, this is so i would say this is like the hoover era of the fbi yeah exactly where, um they like you know they they were they were recording literally everything you did if you true, like true. weren't an ex-nazi pretty much yeah. um <laughs> side note about hoover though um broken clock is right twice a day uh i don't think i remember to write this down in my notes but uh, apparently one of like the write-ups that the FBI did of Hoover stated that like, it said like Bobby Fisher is clearly insane. And, uh, Hoover like wrote in the margins. I agree. Uh, which <laughs> yeah, takes dope. one to know one, I guess, but he is right. Um, okay. So let's see. Uh, he was taught the rules of chess at age six, uh, by his mother and was, uh, immediately hooked. Uh, he later said in an interview, like someone asked him, like, when did you start playing? He said six. And they're like, when did you get good? He's like, ah, oh, seven. Yeah. Um, he would <laughs> he play. Was, 
sort of immediately um, enamored by the game. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, maybe later if we talk about sort of the psychology of Bobby Fischer, it makes a lot of sense that he kind of just threw his entire life into this game. Mm-hmm. But it became, I don't know if I want to call it a hyperfixation. I mean, I think that's fair, right? To call it a hyperfixation. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, yeah. Almost yeah. immediately, yeah. Yeah, uh, like he would play like dozens of games, often against himself. Mm-hmm. Um, he would just like sit like at the dinner table next to his bed. Wherever he was going, he had a little chessboard and he was just playing games after games after games against himself, which I can see how that would drive you crazy, but I can also see how it would make you really good at chess. Um, and he had a pretty natural talent for it. Uh, he was so obsessed with chess that his mom actually took him to a psychiatrist once. Uh, and the psychiatrist was basically like, nah, I'm sure this won't lead to anything bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if I remember correctly, there was something the about music like, plays. If I remember correctly, there was something about, oh, well, he could be doing worse things than chess. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and right. to be fair, he did. he was right (laughs) that is a funny like that is such a like 1940s psychiatrist to be like yeah it's probably fine it'll be all right about it wait Uh, your wife is arguing with you put her in the asylum she's insane yeah yeah, she's gone she's gone (laughs) Um, so uh in 1956 he began training under the chess master jack collins uh who's also a genius in his own right um, and taught a lot of the most gifted chess players at the time. Michael, did you know much about Jack Collins? Did you have anything to add there? I didn't look too much into him specifically. I remember hearing that name, but I glossed over that. My my problem was when I was actually going through this documentary, so the thing that we're drawing similar information from was kind of what stood out most. I was at work while I listened to it, so I wasn't exactly taking notes uh, or yeah. anything. <laughs> no, that's all good. But yeah, anything you, you got, um, curious. Do you know what year... Uh, john or jack collins uh died matt uh i don't actually let me know it was 2001 Mm, so interesting Mm. so Mm. i'm just saying Mm. maybe i'm the reincarnation of jack collins who knows well well no that's that's the angle i'm taking that's exactly where my mind went to like i was pretty sure that's what he was getting at yeah 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 (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah, no, he... Okay, hang on. Let me pull up his Wikipedia because I thought it was funny. Yeah, so some people called him, and this is a direct quote, the Yoda of American chess uh, because <laughs> of how many people he's trained, um, <laughs> including uh, William Lombardi was the first name that I saw that I recognized. Oh. Um, another guy who is uh, less crazy than Bobby Fischer, but definitely equally eccentric. Like, for a while, he was a Catholic priest. Uh, and then... Because, you know, I guess he was trying to get out of the chess game. So that was what he went up to. Um, mm. Just very interesting. Like, you know, chess attracts weird minds a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Like Michael. Yeah, like Michael. <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And then in <laughs> 1957 is when he really rose to national attention. Uh, when he became the youngest ever national master uh, before he was even 15 years old. I think he was like two months shy still of, of yeah. his, uh, which that's, that's very crazy. Impressive. That's yeah. very impressive. Yeah. Now, I was on, sort of under the impression from the documentary I walked and watched and some of the stuff I read that like his mom uh, pushed him kind of into the spotlight. But then I was also under the impression, like from what we talked about earlier, that she was also a little 
a little reticent about his chest stuff. Um, do either of you have any? Yeah, that was, on there? that was one of the things I didn't love about the documentary. Because um, one of my other sources was um, the book Endgame by Frank Brady. Uh, which, yeah, it's all about the Avengers. Uh, no, no, it's uh, <laughs> it's about Bobby right, Fischer. Yeah. Um, and he, he doesn't he doesn't go quite so far as to imply like this the documentary sort of implies that she was like trying to turn him into a child star yeah that was the implication i got too and then but then like it sort of contradicted itself where with some of the interviews she was sort of like yeah chess is bobby's thing you know and it's not really i don't really care about that i I care about ending vietnam or you know yeah which fair fair enough enough. (laughs) yeah (laughs) so yeah i the impression I've always gotten is that it was complicated, right? Like, I think she sure. definitely, uh, she, I think she definitely, she knew that her son had a gift. Like everybody, Absolutely. even the people who hate Bobby Fisher, no one's going to go like, actually, he wasn't good at chess. Yeah, he kind of <laughs> sucked, honestly. <laughs> uh, and I think she probably did enjoy that he was receiving attention for it. But I think she also, uh, particularly as it wore on and clearly began to drive him insane, went like, ooh, maybe we should pump the brakes. Well, and also like, I, I also don't. I'm I'm try, I'm trying to be careful not point the blame at uh, a single mother because I understand mm-hmm. how tough that is. But like, uh, I kind of got the feeling based on the information I heard that like his early life, sort of the um, kind of jumbledness of the way they lived, moving from home to home, and like never having a father figure consistently there, and then finding out the incorrectness of his parentage at age nine Mm -hmm. and then being rocketed into the spotlight at 15, all of that sort of informed, I think the way the buildup of things that would lead to his inevitable breakdown. Does that make any sense? Yeah, for sure. I definitely think from the beginning, Bobby was probably a little predisposed to be a bit unstable. Uh, And I think his upbringing definitely didn't help. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that uh, I was thinking as well, which, um, you know, you can take this for what you will, but uh, to me, I was wondering how much of this, where they had these two different, like, conflicting ideas of, like, how his mom treated him. I was, you know, obviously you can have two different opinions and stuff like that. You might go back and forth between them. But I was thinking, I mean, we also need to keep in mind that Bobby, pretty much, like, from the get go, was sort of a, peculiar and paranoid person and so it's possible Mm -hmm. that some of the mixed messages we're getting uh comes from the fact that he was also giving his own perspective on this and he might be ascribing a little bit more to her about this like oh she she wanted to share my fame or she wanted me to like be the star you know whatever exactly it is that he was proposing because it did seem that he had a strained relationship with his family as well absolutely absolutely and yeah. luckily, none of us know anything about being peculiar or paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> yep, none of us. Uh, none of yeah, us. yeah. it is worth noting. I did forget to say that off the bat. But yeah, Bobby Fisher is sort of an unreliable narrator from day one. So absolutely, he has to take everything he says with a healthy dose of salt. I think paranoia, too. I'm glad you brought that up, Michael, because I think paranoia is kind of one of the one of the many, but one of the main continuing threads throughout the Bobby Fisher saga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and I think it, when you, when you look at where he ended up and then kind of trace it back to like the beginning, that sort of untrustworthiness and like, I guess, anxiety about things trying to hurt him, uh, is sort of present all throughout his life. And it makes that 
that end note of his his life and career that make that much more sense yeah for sure okay so hang on let's see the next thing i have and by the way michael interject whenever if like you think i've like skipped over an important date or an important game um, oh, yeah, for sure. But in 1958, uh, he flew to the Soviet Union, uh, which is in and of itself. That's wild. That's just a thing yeah. he, he did in 1958 uh, when a time right. when pretty famously we weren't getting along very well with them. Um, yeah, he flew to the Soviet Union where he played uh, flash games against several prominent Russian players. Uh, and then demanded to play against world champion uh, Mikhail Botvidik. Sorry, Botvinnik, uh, and uh, th- this this demand was turned down. Um, <laughs> although I, briefly, though, I want to say, do you know how he got those round trip tickets to the Soviet yeah, Union? Yeah, do you want to do you want to tell everybody? Yeah. He was on a game show called "I've Got a Secret," uh, <laughs> which I don't know what that is, but certainly an anonymous title. Um, uh, I, I don't know if he. I guess he won. I think it was like I think it was a panel game show. Yeah, it's I've seen like a couple episodes of it and it's it's very weird. I still don't entirely understand the premise cuz it I'm pretty sure it literally is just three people trying to guess your secret. Uh it's and, like Riddles in the Dark from The Hobbit. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. my pocket. Mm. Yeah. Um yeah, pretty much because like, <laughs> I saw one where it was like this like ancient man who looks like he is already a little dead. Uh, and his secret was that he was like present at the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, <laughs> Pretty sick secret. Yeah, which I mean, that is a dope. First secret. off, why was it a secret? Was he not supposed to be there? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say yeah, he did fight for the Union. To be clear. Um, oh, good. All right, cool. <laughs> not he's sitting there in full Confederate apparel. And like, I wonder what this man's secret is. Um, but anyway, so yeah, he played on "I've Got a Secret," and his secret was, in fact that he was a nationally known and acclaimed master at chess. Not uh, much of a so secret, really. Guess. It's yeah. nationally known and acclaimed. Yeah. yeah, as you say, it's it's not much of a secret. But at this point, chess was still a little bit of like, a, it was a novelty. And we yeah. don't think of it that way now, uh, in part because of Bobby Fischer. But uh, back in the day, it wasn't sort of the the universal shorthand for like, you know, the oh, this genius sitting up there playing chess with himself. Yeah. Like, it was just sort of like, kind of a weird thing it was it was for hobbyists um but as it was a side like note, building warhammer figurines <laughs> yeah exactly uh but as a side note about uh botvinnik the world champion at the time uh he trained several other uh very prominent soviet grandmasters uh including anatoly karpov and uh gary kasparov uh <laughs> two favorites of mine and kasparov uh later on in his career would go on to uh, lose a chess game against Deep Blue, the uh, chess playing computer robot, oh, which is its own sus rabbit hole. Uh, I'm not yeah. going to say that they cheated, but they cheated. Uh, and <laughs> Kasparov was right to be mad at them. Uh, anyway, um, just wanted to put that out there. Uh, and I so, you had uh, that Bobby's. Take on that. <laughs> yeah I, i'm a kasparov truther man uh but um but uh also fisher's fairly volcanic personality i think was on display even back then uh yeah. he he would refer to the soviets as russians which is very funny when you think about the soviet union's makeup uh but he uh he was very mad after he learned that he wouldn't be like playing any official games he would just be playing flash games 
and he wrote a note saying that he would uh, not be playing any after learning that yelling uh, that he was quote done with these Russian pigs and that he would teach them a lesson Uh, which which he did yeah which seems to have been his modus operandi for the rest of his life yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah, interesting just like the paranoia it was it was all there from the beginning i think yeah Um, the kind of the dis uh, the misplaced rage i think mm -hmm. yeah Um, i think rage that you know i don't want to psychoanalyze the guy but like it's very clear that that rage it's not because the russians or the jews as groups did anything to him yeah particularly right there's something deeper there and more personal yeah, as uh, towards the end of the episode, I have a couple questions about that that I'm going to ask you guys. Uh, so we'll we'll really dive into okay, it right. then. Um, so now I'm going to jump into sort of like the Cold War era aspect of his games. Um, so first, I do just want to note uh, the Soviet Union for a very long time was crushing it on the world stage in terms of chess. Um, in 1972, when... Bobby Fischer uh, eventually played uh, when he when he won. That ended a 24 year win streak that the Soviets had been holding. And didn't weren't they like really putting a lot of? Well, first off, I think it wasn't very popular in Russia as a mm-hmm. sport, chess. Yeah, and they were was, putting a lot of like uh, money and effort from the government into like churning out chess players. Yeah, because and this is it. It's an it was an ideological thing they viewed chess as like a very communist uh pastime because Mm. you know whether you're rich or poor if you're good at chess you're good at chess so they would like send talent scouts into these like little russian villages like you could like apply to these like very powerful chess academies and you know because it was the soviet union these weren't like elite things you had to pay buckets of money for um and that's, uh, you know, just to get on my little commie soapbox, I think that is in large part why the Soviet Union was so good, was they understood that chess, if played properly, can be a class equalizer. Yeah. Uh, and they, and later the Americans, realized uh, very early on that chess is an important, it was an important part of the Cold War and like showing sort of your nation's yeah. approach to things. It's kind um, of like a metaphor for the Cold War itself, right? You know, it mm-hmm. was essentially one big chess game, right? As opposed to be being a war fought with a big bomb mm-hmm. that they made at the bomb factory that his dad worked at. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike, I cut you off. What were you saying? Oh no, I was just gonna say it's super funny because it, it seems to go right along the uh, the side with like the. Uh, I'm sure you've seen some of the memes with like America celebrating once they win the space race because they made it to the moon, and you know everything else to yeah, kind of count along the way. I, I get the same vibe from like chess not being important until we started winning at it. Um, you right. Know, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's very yeah, And when we get to that, yeah, when we get to that, I will talk about it because it exploded in popularity. Yeah, in absolutely. 1972, notably, yeah. the first yeah. time we were good at it publicly. So much so that there was a Columbo episode dedicated. <laughs> <laughs> this is a uh, this is a recurring bugbear on yeah. the podcast I found. Eventually, I'm going to have to watch it. We'll, well, yeah, and we will discuss. But um, I did actually want to pose a question, both of you. I think yeah, now's a good sure. time when we're talking about how Russia was putting so much time and effort into training people um, playing the game, and that—that's it. That is how much of this sort of chess genius stuff do you think is practice, learning, and understanding, 
and how much do you think is inherent talent? Uh, so I open that up to both of you. Uh, Michael, I'll let you go first. Great, yeah. Um, well, I'd say that it's it's honestly surprising the more you look at it. And uh, if you look at any interviews with top-level players nowadays, I mean, there's a whole lot that goes into it. And that theory sort of has expanded. And I think that was sort of part of that developmental phase. Um, because nowadays, there's a lot that goes into training. But I'd say that, yeah, a big part of it is practice and repetition because there's a lot of these patterns and stuff you need to be able to pick up um it's it's a lot of a sort of a spatial sort of mind i guess that you need and you need to be good at remembering patterns because the fact is people say oh well you know there's billions of combinations but in reality uh, there's still a lot like endless possibilities for the game but what you're going to deal with in top level games, they're going to be very similar situations and it's going to require some sort of knowledge knowing, oh, look at this. I've been mm -hmm. in this sort of situation before, albeit maybe with a piece or down a piece. So you'd say it's like experience more over maybe experience hand in hand with problem solving then? Mm -hmm. I would. That's, I that's would definitely, my take as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the mm -hmm. reason I brought this up is because they did interview Malcolm Gladwell of um uh what's that book called uh, the seven habits of highly effective yeah, people, whatever whatever it's called um we all and, know the one uh. yeah which has been largely debunked but i i do think it has um at least for some things it there is an application of doing it a lot um mm -hmm. at least with purpose and like learning in a way not learning wrong and then practicing a bunch obviously you're going to get good at something so that's very interesting i would I was curious about that because I do think it depends on the sport and the art. Um, and chess is usually sold as kind of a strategy game, like a psychology game, right? Mm -hmm. um, where it's like it's it's like war, and you're trying to figure out what they do next. Like you're having all these moves planned out in your mind. But so that's interesting to me that you say um, that it's more about remembering situations you've been in the past and adapting, responding. And it reminded me of what Bobby Fischer said, which is. He doesn't believe in the psychology of the games. Mm -hmm. He just believes in good moves. Yeah. And um, that's so the thing about all the combinations, right? It's obviously there's only a couple good ones. There's a reason that there are openings that are known to be like bad, right? Right. And that's something that, you know, the uh, the liars behind Deep Blue had to work <laughs> out when they were making it. Uh, this I am standing on this soapbox uh, is <laughs> uh, is like, you know, there's there's these billions of possible chess games. But a lot of those, most of those moves are going to make you lose. And they had to uh, yeah. pretend that they had figured out a way to sort out the good ones from the bad ones. Okay, I'll stop, I'll stop hating on Deep Blue now. But, um, <laughs> but it is, it's a very interesting thing. Um, so let's see, uh, where am I? Okay. Deep Blue is to Matt what Catholicism is to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, Catholics. Yep. Nothing but love. Look, we love our Catholic listeners. Um, Except for Pope Francis. <laughs> yeah, friend of the show. Friend of the show. <laughs> uh, but so throughout much of the 60s, uh, Bobby had a, a pretty erratic string, uh, which stayed true throughout yeah. his life, I guess. Uh, yeah, it was a pretty erratic Bobby. string of, yeah, <laughs> of uh, <laughs> victories and then also some like devastating, just crushing losses. Uh, and like two or three like semi-retirements where he was like, I'm done with chess. And then they, someone would offer him some money and be like, ah, well, 
uh, <laughs> come back out of retirement. And I'm just going to focus on a couple games, I think, that are uh, sort of illustrative of our bigger points and like the portrait of Bobby Fischer we're trying to make. Um, so this is one uh, we're going to be talking about a character who I know Michael and I both have a love for. Which is oh, to say boy. when he was only 17, he played against uh, the Soviet Grandmaster Mikhail Tall, uh, who might be my favorite chess player of all time. And um, so just before I, this is the only long quote I have for the episode, but I wanted to read it in its entirety because it's just so good. So Tall was known for, um, he, for A, his very friendly nature. He was a likable person. Even Bobby Fischer towards the end of his, like, his life liked Tall which is a sign that he was a very likable person. Um, <laughs> but uh, he also is known for his like penetrating stare during his games. Uh, Michael, do you want to tell us anything about the the stare before I go into this quote? Oh, yeah. Um, so Tall just, it's funny because I've been reading this. It's not autobiography, it's a biography. And it's written in a format where he's describing a lot. He's answering questions from an interviewer. And you definitely get this feel that he has sort of this playful energy about him. But to anyone that might not have experience with him, it comes off as very intimidating, uh, very intense. I mean, there's a story of a, another uh, Soviet, I believe, who came to a tournament wearing these big, goofy glasses. That way they wouldn't get, like, uh, annihilated by his stare. You know, they wanted protection against the radiation just emanating from this man, just the pure energy <laughs> of his of yeah. his uh, attacking prowess. It's very funny. So, yeah, mm -hmm. he, he definitely had a reputation for his stare. Yeah, yeah. So, oh no, I was gonna ahead. say the 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 picture for him on Wikipedia. He's doing the stare right at me. And yeah, it's <laughs> working. He, was, he had a very intense like aura about him, even though he yeah. was also, of course, like very playful and friendly. So, sure. uh, here's a quote on his first game against Tall, uh, and it's just funny to see this because so Endgame is uh, it's pretty pro Bobby Fischer, like obviously, especially towards the end of his life, he has some criticisms. But especially early on, he's very sympathetic to him. And so I just love hearing this story about, because Michael and I have a story about this game that we've heard from Tall's oh, perspective. Yeah. And I just love hearing it from Bobby's side. Um, okay, so here's a quote. He became annoyed at Tall's comportment at and away from the board. This time, the stare began to rankle him. Tall, in a seeming bid to increase Bobby's irritation, also offered a slight smile of incredulity after each of the Americans' moves, as if he were saying, Silly boy, I know what you have in mind. How amusing to think you can trick me. Fisher, deciding to try and use Tall's tactics against him, tried producing his own stare, and even flashed Tall an abbreviated sneering smile of contempt. But after a few seconds, <laughs> he'd break eye contact and concentrate on the more important things, the action on the board, the sequence of moves he planned to follow, or the ways to counter the combination Tall seemed to be formulating. Tall was an encyclopedia of kinetic movement. All in a matter of seconds, he'd move a chess piece, record the action on his score sheet, position his head within inches of the clock to check the time, grimace, smile, raise his eyebrows, and, quote, make funny faces, as Bobby <laughs> characterized it. Then he'd rise and walk up and down the stage while Bobby was thinking. Tall's coach, Igor uh, Bondarevsky, referred to his charges movements as, quote, circling around the table like a vulture, presumably a vulture ready to pounce. Tall chains <laughs> and could consume a pack of cigarettes during the course of a game. 
He also had the habit of resting his chin on the edge of the table, peering through the pieces and peeking at his opponent, rather than establishing a bird's eye view by staring by sitting up straight and looking down, which would have provided better perspective on the intricacies of the board. Since Tall's body language was so bizarre, Fisher interpreted it as an attempt to annoy him. Um, and he goes on like this for several more pages about. <laughs> I feel like that says more about Fisher than it does. Exactly. All, right? That's what I was like. This guy say. just has ADHD. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is, it's the very funny thing, right? I don't want to do any armchair diagnoses, right? Of especially course. like think about like his difficulty holding eye contact. It's funny that it just reads like the two most neurodivergent people in the room <laughs> trying to interact with each other. <laughs> Uh, and just like you know each of them and their own like weird little quirks is like psyching the other one out so much that they don't know what to do um that's and so it's, sorry i'd like to interject here um i just want to say it's super funny because you know I, I believe roswell brought up this quote already he says like what was it? i don't believe in psychology or i don't believe in playing mind games basically he mm -hmm. says like you know it's all on the board right right but especially with someone like bobby i feel like Maybe what he meant by that is maybe, you know, I don't try to psych out my opponents, but he certainly seemed psyched out by a lot of his own opponents. Like he, he felt that other people yeah. were doing those moves against him, which is very funny. He definitely was mindful of that element of the game. Especially <laughs> especially in his game against Spassky later on as well. Right. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, and then, Michael, would you like to deliver uh, Tall's side of the story, particularly his, uh, his smile of incredulity? Oh, that was so funny. So there's a specific point in this game that comes up uh where tall makes just a slight inaccuracy and he realizes this can be exploited if bobby finds the right move and now back in the day you would write down your move before you move the piece uh this was just standard but you you do record your moves in a form of notation and so bobby writes down his move and he's just giving it like a last thought and he kind of glances up at tall and tall looks at it and he sees bobby looking up at him and he's like shoot he found it and now what, what's he doing? He's like, it almost felt like he was looking at me to, uh, he was looking to me for approval for this move. And he said, well, I, I wanted to congratulate him. I mean, I, I didn't want to like seem, I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was very <laughs> funny. And it felt like a friendly sort of notion where it's like, you know, uh, well, good job. And so like, you know, I, I don't want to like feel crushed, but I don't want to, uh, you know, feel condescending either. And so he gives him this smile because it just seems like the right thing to do. Just a friendly, like, all right, you got me. And Bobby sees this man smiling at him and he's like what have i done wrong like he knows like they know they're thinking the same thing except they're really not and so bobby erases the move and finds a different worse move and then proceeds to lose the game because of it if he had just stuck wow. with his original move not getting psyched out by the smile then he would have won that game which is just so funny yeah and Atal has been quoted as after the game, basically walking up to him going like, Bobby, you had me. Like, why did you change the move? And Bobby's response was, well, you laughed when I played it. Uh, which, <laughs> on top of being a very funny anecdote, right? Yeah. It is also, it's very illustrative of Bobby's sort of like, his very paranoid approach to the game and the world in general. Absolutely. And I think it is funny, but like kind of knowing the context of the rest of his life, it's also a little bit, I think sad because mm -hmm. I think that also has something to do with his trouble with connecting with other people mm -hmm. and probably why he felt so lonely is that um, he sort of, I don't want to say impugn was impugning bad motives on Mikhail there, but you know, he was assuming the worst as opposed to just taking it at face value. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 
It's interesting. Well, let's keep uh, moving right along. We're right, yeah. Sorry. Oh, this, this might be a here. long episode. Sorry about yeah. that one, Ross. No we've thrown you to the wolves for editing. <laughs> it's um, all right. But uh, okay, so yeah, in 1962, he played a tournament uh, where he was defeated, and he accused the four uh, Soviet grandmasters in attendance of colluding against him to keep him from the top spot. Uh, which, as a side note, almost everybody agrees that they probably did. It, so whenever they were, whenever the Soviets played against each other, they would just immediately play for a draw, which gives you, uh, Michael. Remind me if I'm hmm. wrong, but I believe it means that you get a half point. Yeah. And I know that also means they weren't. No, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, I know that it differs depending on the format, which is interesting because he was very particular about it later in life. He mm -hmm. tried to change the format of even the world championship itself. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, you will get some points and it's better than just losing. So yeah, you mm -hmm. could definitely make a coordinated effort there to just be yeah. getting half points for these games. And they would also, of course, not be expending all of their time and effort on each other. And so when they right. went up against Bobby, they each like crushed him. Uh, and so Bobby, classic like, classic communist mindset. There. Classic, look, they're working as a team. It's that camaraderie. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so he he of course accused them of colluding. There's no way to prove it, even though yeah. now almost every chess historian goes, yeah, yeah, they absolutely were. Um, which. I imagine didn't help his uh, growing sense that there was a yeah. conspiracy against him. Uh, so I'm going to jump forward a little bit. We're going to go to 1972. Now this is the big oh, game. Boy. This is the one that everybody knows. Uh, so he finally got the opportunity to play against the current reigning world champion, Boris Spassky, uh, who, if you couldn't guess from the name was a Soviet. Um, <laughs> and you know, this He's is actually Welsh fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> This was a huge deal, right? Because at the time, like I said, Soviet Union had top dog in the chess world for 24 straight years. Right. Um, and so it was going to be, this tournament was going to be in Iceland. And getting Bobby to go there was like pulling teeth. Like he would get slightly closer to the airport and then turn around and run away. There was one time where they got him in the airport and a yeah. reporter saw him and he turned and sprinted out the door and got in the limo and drove home. Yeah. Which... Um, I think that was very like humanizing and relatable to me because like I don't know like I don't know what I would do if I was like trying to go about my life and people just like kept walking up and taking pictures of me like I oh, think yeah. that's like you know people are like oh this crazy guy but it's like you know someone who's like sh shot into the public eye at a young age and is being now harassed by a bunch of people essentially yeah I think that's sort of fair but at the same time he'd committed to this um agreement to be in this chess game and the days were ticking closer and closer that's not a term the the <laughs> clock was ticking and the days were kind of getting on at, as to when this had to take place uh and it was bec becoming very worrying that he might not show at all yeah, uh, which would and, be very disappointing and of course the soviets were in classic form insulted by this uh they thought <laughs> that it was bobby playing mind games and not just being yeah, insane right uh, and the two big things that really pushed bobby over uh, both of which I would like to just sort of note. One yeah. is he received a personal phone call from Henry Kissinger, which interesting. Yeah, uh, yes. I emoji. I emoji. Uh, <laughs> the other one, maybe not as immediately I emoji, but for me, let me tell you, I went down a rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, is one uh, Jim Slater, a British multimillionaire, personally doubled the prize money for this world championship. 
Now, just a, a brief little sidebar about Jim Slater. Um, so he belonged to a group called the Claremont Set, which is a group of rich British people and included like Ian Fleming and a lot of other like weird intelligence connections. Uh, there were members of Le Cercle there uh, and also notably uh, the uh, the Bilderberg. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but, uh, you know, it's basically like hmm. it's like deep state con effectively. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a few notable attendees include like Tony Blair, Emmanuel Macron and uh, Bill Clinton, who all attended a few years before taking <sighs> the highest seats of power. Um, and right. one other one other Bilderberg note uh, that I would like to make is uh in 1966, the top item of their agenda was restructuring NATO. And since that meeting, every single permanent NATO secretary general has attended at least one Bilderberg meeting prior to be appointed. Um, but, hmm. you know, fortunately, it's not like NATO has any history of being run by Nazis or anything. So I'm not too worried about it. Uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Back to the matter at hand. Look, I had to go down the rabbit holes where I no, could. Um, I'm not. I I appreciate that. That was fact. Very informative. I just love the way you editorialize. But please continue. <laughs> um. But yeah. So anyway, they finally get Bobby there, uh, and then he just Fisher just does not show up to the first game. Uh, well, at least not at well, first. Well, he does. Yeah, yeah he, he they're, they're worried because he's not there on time, and so they start his clock. Yeah, so Spassky um, just, like, starts his clock, which, baller yeah, move. Pretty um, sick. He opens with a... Do you remember what he opened with, Michael? Ooh, I want to say it was an English opening the first game. I can... I'm going to yeah. look this up real quick just to make sure, but I, I think it was an English opening. <laughs> yeah, so Spassky makes his move and then punches uh, Bobby's clock. He's yeah. Like, All right, well... Uh, and so then Bobby runs in... Uh, nine minutes later yeah uh, which is a lot of time in chess That's a lot of time yeah um and so he runs in uh and says like yeah sorry i got stuck in traffic <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> then starts playing um, um and some have speculated this was uh an intentional move on bobby's part that he was like trying to play mind games get into the psychology uh, uh yeah but most of the people close to him are like, no, this is just Bobby being Bobby. Yeah, um, he was probably just nervous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, on yeah, I, I would be too, right? Yeah. Well, and especially if you think about like not to derail like this first game, but just briefly, um, he had mentioned and other people mentioned that like national prestige, like America, mm -hmm. essentially was at stake here, and everyone was telling him about it. Yeah, exactly. And so that's an immense amount of pressure to place on a mentally ill man with all these eyes watching him. So he was understandably a bit perturbed at this first game. Yeah, it'll it'll be stressful, right? Like, you know, you're you have like these spooked up British millionaires like doubling the cash. Yeah, exactly. Calling you going like the fate of the nation is at stake. Right? <laughs> I need you to win. And like, oh, okay. I have. I have the scariest voice on the planet, Bobby. You will do what I say. It is crazy how he just sounds exactly as evil as he is. Um, but anyway. It's so true. Um, so, Michael, there's one notable part of this game that I imagine you probably have prepared. Yeah. Right? The game at this point is in a dead draw, and Bobby makes a baffling yes. move that people still talk about. Yeah. Now, would you I, like this one, it's interesting. I think... Yeah, uh, I think the first time I heard about this principle was actually when I was watching an analysis of this game. And ever since I've known you're not supposed to do it, he took a pawn on the very side in a structure where there are three pawns together. 
they hadn't moved yet. And basically, he did this with the bishop. And basically what this does is it locks your bishop in and he's just trapped in jail. And so you need some sort of plan to send in, you need other pieces nearby to coordinate, or this needs to be a well-timed sacrifice, maybe to draw another piece away to go actually collect that bishop. But the long and short of it is, uh, you can calculate it, and I can calculate it. Like, I could see far enough ahead as a player my rank, who's not even half of his own ELO rating at this point when he was doing this match, um, I could make the calculations necessary in order to recognize um, that he, you're just losing a bishop, which is not what you want to do in an endgame. You don't want to lose a piece for nothing. And so mm -hmm. basically, when you're looking at it, it was just a blunder. I mean, he just made a mistake and he lost the game because of it. And you wonder what yeah. was happening. And I think it's fair to say that the pressure was still being felt. It's not like he just got into the zone and it was all good at that point. He was still going yeah, through things absolutely. at this point. And I think it's also important to mention for our non-chess people, because I as a non-chess person didn't know this, but him losing this game was not him losing the championship because these two players would play, I believe it was 24 games against 24 each other. was the initially agreed yeah. upon thing. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I forgot yeah. to mention that up front. Which no, sorry, sorry. Yeah. An insane amount of chess playing, especially at this level. Like absolutely. You can tell mm -hmm. why so many chess players go crazy when you hear about yeah. that sort of thing. Like that is so much mental and physical pressure. Like yeah. Bobby Fischer. Also, you look at like, you know, modern grandmasters, right? Like Magnus Carlsen, they're built like trucks because it is, <laughs> such is like so a physically exhausting. Yeah, exactly. But like, they're literally like, like the, the giga Chad Wojak where he has like the yeah. big brain and the giant muscles. Like, <laughs> um, but anyway, so he, all, he blamed his loss on the cameras and said that they were like making noises that would, that were yeah. distracting him. Uh, and he just, I think in part because he was so psyched out by making such a clear blunder, uh, he just didn't show up to the second game and forfeited. So yeah. he was now at a two-point deficit, which there's usually no coming back from that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but in the third game, Fisher insisted that it would be played in a separate sealed room with no one else in there and just one CCTV camera recording them, which people would then watch and then like report to the news what was going on. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, Spassky, to his credit, <laughs> heard this insane demand and went, "Yeah, okay, yeah." Um, yeah. And honestly, I I came to appreciate Spassky over the course of this game because, oh yeah, um, he he showed a lot of poise and countenance, I guess you could say, um, in opposition to some sort of very insane things that Bobby mm -hmm. was doing. Uh, and also, you know, you have to remember he was in a similar situation, the same amount of pressure. Mm -hmm. No doubt he was nervous, too. Um, but he never seemed to be um, begrudging to the mm -hmm. way Bobby was acting, which I think I really appreciated about Spassky. He just seems kind of like a, at least through what I've watched, you know, which was this game, just seems kind of like a cool dude who's just trying to play some chess. Yeah, he was very famously even keeled, which is why it's so notable that, especially in that first game, he got like visibly agitated by Bobby not being right. Like, he started walking around and like pacing, yeah. and, like running his hands through his hair. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it's but no, I I agree. Like you know, uh, all credit to Spassky, and obviously I'm a little predisposed to like him. So the fact that you also <laughs> like him uh, is is a good sign, I think. Uh oh. Um, <laughs> we'll put that on the chalkboard of our ongoing <laughs> duel. Just another tick for you. But um, anyway, so Fisher wins this third game, uh, which is big, right? This is his first yeah. actual victory. 
Um, and I'm not going to give a play by play for every other game. I am going <laughs> to mention uh, that at uh, the sixth game is like game six between them is widely regarded as one of the best games in the history of chess. Yes. Um, and they said it in the documentary, right? He, the victory was so like flawless and so like well done that at the end when uh, Fisher got like a standing ovation, Spassky himself also stood up and like applauded him because, right. you know, he respected the craft and like the Absolutely. brilliance that was clearly on display. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, from there, Fisher won. He, uh, after 21 games, uh, Spassky decided that he was just going to call it a day uh, and just said like, Bobby Fischer is the new world champion. Um, and, uh, you know, a little later on in his life, uh, Spassky started to, he and other Russians alleged that uh, part of the reason his game suddenly took a turn was that he had been targeted with radiation or that there had been bugs implanted in his yeah. room. He even uh, actually said that, like, while this was happening. I wanted yeah. to say that too, yeah. 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 So that 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 kind of feeling wasn't out of nowhere. And I also I think it's important to mention he forfeited. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, he, at, at a certain point. Yeah, he just yeah. Uh he just decided not to attend because he was He like, pulled okay. a Bobby Fisher and just did not attend. <laughs> Which hey, <laughs> the power move. Yeah, um, right. But yeah, no, so yeah, there's that that interview that he gave where it's like I'm not usually a suspicious person, but I am a little suspicious. Yeah, exactly. And I just think it's interesting, you know, maybe I shouldn't have made fun of everybody for Havana syndrome. It's possible that they were targeting him with the radiation, right? Hey, I famously had had it, so <laughs> if you recall a few episodes. Um, but uh, yeah, so in my notes underneath the radiation thing, I just put Havana syndrome real in parentheses. <laughs> That's in so question. Funny. Uh, anyway, so this victory is uh, well, a it was huge, right? Because yeah. the Americans have toppled the Soviets uh, in this battle of wits, and so chess explodes in popularity in America, right? Um, well, I thought it was fascinating because as this was going, it, this was a big deal while it was had. This was mm -hmm. like natural because, of course, you think about it. It's like if you're in America, your country's biggest uh, adversary. It, now you're going against each other in like sort of an ideological battle in a very small televised scale. Mm -hmm. Of course, everybody's paying attention. And so there was these amazing like vignettes of them cutting to different people in America that they were interviewing about chess. And it was a to me, very fascinating to see the wide swath of people of different ages, races, races, and backgrounds mm -hmm. um, being interested in this game for shrimpy armed nerds, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know what I mean? Like it's it's sort of a niche thing you wouldn't expect to have the same acclaim as like football, right? Mm -hmm. um, and suddenly this is a national event. Yeah, I did like the the one guy they interviewed. Uh, who said that he thought Fisher was going to win because Fisher was playing for money, but if Spassky won, then the government would take it all. Which oh, just that. That so incredible funny. analysis yeah. of the intricacies of chess there. Yeah, uh, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this victory, unfortunately, is also where Fisher specifically started to take a turn for the worse, I think. Yeah, um, absolutely. So uh, a Soviet international master, actually, in 1973, when they talked about, like, people... Fisher received all these offers for like brand deals and all these things. And he didn't take most of them. Mm. Um, and uh, so this other international master, uh, what's his name? Uh, George Koltanowski uh, said in 1973 that Fisher was paranoid and didn't trust anyone. Uh, hang on, let me quote him here. He said, there's a word for it in German. Verfolgungswaffen, I believe. Uh, you know, this is, like I said, we're back to me butchering German. 
on Mike, uh, which means it's okay, uh, they deserve it. <laughs> which uh, literally translates to persecution mania. And Interesting. If I have not heard a better analysis of Bobby Fischer's psychology than persecution mania, yeah, it's a persecution yeah. complex essentially, yeah. right? Yeah, that's fascinating, and I think it's very, it's a very good read of what is going on in his mind a lot of mm -hmm. times. So uh, when Fisher was defending his status as world champion, he made like this, frankly, very unreasonable list of demands for his game against uh, Anatoly Karpov, which was, if I remember right, I forgot to write them down, but it was that there would be no limits on the number of games. Uh, in the case of a, an even number of draws, like an even score after nine games each, uh, then Fisher would be declared the victor. And uh, one other one. So basically, it meant that Karpov, Anatoly Karpov, who was playing against him, would have been fighting uphill the entire time. Right. And, you know, uh, the people reviewing his demands said, no, absolutely not. What are you thinking? Yeah. Uh, and so Fisher forfeited. He just refused to attend, uh, which I personally think is a loss for the, ga the game of chess because Karpov was also a brilliant player. And watching those two face off, I think, would have been very interesting. Um, yeah, and there was there was an interesting kind of read on that situation. I think it was one of his friends in the documentary who was being interviewed said um, something. Or no, actually, it was Anatoly himself. Yeah, he Karpov, said yeah. it was Karpov. He said something along the lines of that, like um, he, Bobby was so used to being this impervious, you know, unbeatable chess god that to actually have to go out and defend it was scary to him because if you go out to play a game. There's never a uh, a non-zero chance. There's always a non-zero. Wait, there's never a chance you won't lose. <laughs> yeah, is what I'm trying to say. Like, there's always a chance of failure, no matter how good you are, uh, and that is scary, especially to somebody who's been at the top for so long. Um, so he chose, you know, that kind of mental. He to by by making all these unreasonable demands that they wouldn't meet, he could then justify to himself, well, I'm still on top, mm -hmm. you know, not having played this game. You know, because we, we haven't gone against each other and it's I'm being unjustly persecuted by mm -hmm. not being allowed to play in the way that I want or whatever. Yeah. And Karpov in that very like it's a very like Russian poetic style. He said something to the effect of like he who never plays shall never lose or something. like Yeah, that. which um, is a very good quote. It's a very good quote. And it's also a very Karpov quote. Michael, do you yeah. uh, I, I don't want to put you on the hot seat, but do you happen to have any like yeah. Karpov anecdotes that you can just uh, pull out? Uh, as wish, we go, he's, I a, wish he's I had, a favorite of mine. So I wish we had an anecdote. I will say that, um, something, and it does lead into an adjacent point, uh, that I was thinking of, especially when you mentioned both Karpov and Kasparov, uh, is the fact that those two had a little bit of a rivalry going for quite a while. And I want to say that they ended up on both on, uh, different respective sides of this whole thing. I like to imagine it as the chess world schism. Uh, that happens. This is this is after Bobby Fischer, but there's like a whole part uh, where the International Chess Federation, FIDE, the one that was the standard until this point, has a splinter group that breaks off and they form their own. I want to say it's Kasparov that runs this other one for a bit, but he says we are actually the world chess organization. <laughs> and so there's competing forces. And I want to say that they're on different sides of that. Um, but this did come as a result of these different disagreements. And so uh, what I'm trying to get at with all this is the fact that, um, you know, I think people pay a special attention to it with Bobby because 
he, he did it so frequently, and also he seemed to have a personality that just sort of fit it. Um, but he is certainly not alone in wanting to make demands or feeling like he was unjustly treated. Like, it's not like this was completely new precedent for the chess world. I think it did come to a different level, and uh, you could definitely see how the pressure that he was under sort of led to um, an extreme circumstance of it. But he's certainly not alone in it, and I feel like you have to give him the benefit mm. of the doubt there, just recognizing that there were other players at different points, even these guys in the same time period, who uh, uh, we still respect, but they still felt like there were more arguments to be made than just what was going on over the board. Yeah, I always forget that there was a, a holy Roman Empire of the International Chess Federation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I love but... it so much. It's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, too much to get into yeah. right now, but it is it is interesting. <laughs> yeah, uh, Kasparov, I believe, also later on became like an outspoken like anti-Russian uh, guy. Was that Kasparov, or was that that, that was another um, little fuel in their rivalry yeah. there between Kasparov and Karpov? Yeah, uh, but anyway, so then yeah. through the seventies, uh, Bobby would call up friends. Uh, he fell in with this fundamentalist. Uh, some might say doomsday cult. Uh, church uh, called the Worldwide Church of God at the time. Um, and uh, Roswell, did you have anything you wanted to say about them as we... Uh... Uh, what I said to you before we started reporting, which was, ew, spooky. Um, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, but just kind of a broad strokes of the Worldwide Church of God. Uh, it's currently known as Grace Communion International, uh, and it was originally known as the Radio Church of God. Um, but at the time that Bobby was associated with it, it was the Worldwide Church of God. Uh, which I believe you said were all scary names. Yeah, pretty um, much. <laughs> which, which I have to agree with you. Um, it was started by a guy named Herbert Armstrong, who was a radio and televangelist, which already something I'm not a big fan of. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I like it, it's received a lot of criticism from even from other like Christian sources. Um, it, and it's essentially been alleged as a cult um, by a lot. I won't go so far to say that, but it is. Uh, at least under Armstrong it was. But I, I just wanted to briefly read. There was a really funny thing that made me laugh to give you exactly like the idea of what kind of church this was. So this Armstrong guy uh, on his Wikipedia page under his personality, personal conduct, and governance uh, subsection... <laughs> Um, I'm just going to read this directly. It says, uh, Armstrong was often criticized for having lived in extravagant wealth in comparison to a few church members. Personal luxuries enjoyed by Armstrong included a personal jet, the finest clothing, furniture, and other conveniences. And then after that, there's eight sources. <laughs> just the most sources cited in a row. Incredible. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, but yeah, this, this was kind of one of those, he was sort of ripping off uh, some Adventist type stuff and even a little bit of Mormon stuff and some other things. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was, it was sort of a, it was essentially, I don't want to call it a doomsday cult, but it was kind of on the edge of that where they were preaching rapture and revelation mm -hmm. and they're, they're like, yeah, it's coming soon, which they said from world war two to the eighties and presumably yeah. till now, uh, a few times it seems they gave like, I think 1975, they gave us a date like, Oh, it's going to yeah, happen. And and 1975 is so interesting because in a strangely lucid moment, uh, something yeah. that somehow most people who are in like doomsday cults don't figure this one out. But yeah. Bobby did when the doomsday prophecy didn't come true. 
yeah. he immediately went, oh, wait a minute, and then left the church. <laughs> which uh, is which, <laughs> pretty sick. Yeah, which weirdly doesn't happen a lot of the time. It usually doesn't happen. That's actually a thing, which is they, there's, a, I think, a book or a study on that called mm-hmm. When Prophecy Fails, um, which is a pretty interesting read we don't have time to get into now. But yeah, and that, that was sort of the... Um, the, I think the extent of his relationship with the church, he would go on later to like very like virulently deny mm-hmm. uh, being in the church or being a part mm-hmm. of the church, which, you know, was yeah not true. <laughs> he, he was <laughs> yeah. pretty, pretty, uh, pretty connected. And then after that, that's kind of when he really went off the deep end. He really he went off the deep <laughs> end. Reading yeah. like, the protocols of the elders of Zion and things Absolutely. like that. Which, yeah. Yeah. Also, Mein Kampf. Yeah. Um, like, and uh, some of the – I thought this was very interesting. He, he also had some books uh, by Ben Classen. Do you know anything about Ben Classen? Oh, I know that name. Hang on. Yeah. What, what did he do? Well, he was the founder of the World Church of the Creator, which was an atheist church. Uh, but but also okay. it was anti-Semitism, uh, scientific oh. racism, homophobia, uh, and white supremacy. Oh, so playing all hits. <laughs> yeah. So, which, you know, when we talk about, when we see, when we uh, analyze Fisher's statements on uh, Jewish people, yeah. it sort of makes sense that he fell into this. Uh, is this a good place to just pivot into his dirty, dirty, disgusting beliefs? Yeah. So here, I've got a couple things lined up that I'll just burn okay. through. So just as a side note, this period onward uh, is what a lot of like fishers like uh followers or like people who study him called the wilderness years which aside from being a pretty cool name honestly is cool. i think very accurate right at this point he's fisher yeah. is clearly lost right he's wandering yeah. around and he's he as we know he grabbed onto some very repellent things in an attempt to sort of make sense of everything um yeah so yeah he uh like we said he like started reading like Mein Kampf and just really went off the deep end. In 1992, uh, he played a rematch against Spassky in Yugoslavia, uh, which was in violation of uh, sanctions on the country. You couldn't do anything economic there, and he won a million dollars there, which uh, counts as economic participation, I think. Uh, so <laughs> this, uh, he had to become an expat because uh, he faced up to 10 years in prison if he ever returned home. Um, and then, following the uh, September 11th attacks on America, uh, he openly expressed approval of the attacks which is a wild take it Um, is yeah so he stated that uh direct quote what goes around comes around even for the united states which which fair if he had stopped at that we would sort of have to hand it to him yeah exactly unfortunately he then did immediately pivot that into a tirade against jews saying that he hoped that uh, a military coup would occur and then they would arrest and execute all of the leaders of Jewish synagogues, which horrible, not Just re- re- yeah, it's repulsive, really bad. Uh, it's very bad. And um, uh, in response, pretty much, it, it's viewed by many people as a direct response to, particularly his statements about 9/11. The Bush administration, the the new Bush administration, not the H.W. Bush, uh, they the good revoked one. his passport. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I'm just Bush administration. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they revoked his passport, uh, in yeah. which led to him being uh, beaten and imprisoned in Japan when he attempted yeah. to get on a plane because his passport wasn't legal. Yeah. Um. So which? From, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Do you know anything about them beating? That's like, I mean, obviously, 
a cab right even japanese cops but that that's that was sort of interesting to me that they beat him yeah um, so the I, uh oh what have you got michael go ahead oh i was just gonna say i didn't realize there was any actual like substantial stuff on this i thought this was just his story about it which well I'm like, it is his know, story but it's put okay. in endgame like the first chapter of endgame is okay. him getting beaten up by the japanese police with like uh, yeah. a hood being pulled over his head uh and honestly i don't doubt it i don't doubt that I it don't happened either um, yeah it's yeah, not okay, my understanding fair. of the yeah. japanese <laughs> yeah, it's system. not great um, uh, <laughs> yeah i mean just looking at them you'd be like those guys couldn't beat me up with their silly blue helmets but yeah and then you're like oh no there's a hood oh, over no. my head um <laughs> but uh yeah so anyway from from here uh he's in prison for a while and he can't go because he's a man without a country before iceland uh, our old friends uh, reach out to him and they give him a passport and then later on uh, just full citizenship because they the country feels indebted to him right not only did his game against Spassky put chess on the map it also put Iceland on the map yeah uh, for a lot of people something I thought was kind of interesting and vaguely sweet was one of the guys who really fought for him whose name I'm now forgetting it was probably like Jarl Klaglerson or something <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was I, I'm sorry it was we one love of the gentlemen <laughs> we do i i do love this one but he was one of the gentlemen who was the i believe he's the event organizer for mm -hmm. the original game against spasky and so he went um uh in front of I, the icelandic government and sort of fought for bobby to get this and mm -hmm. like you said that sort of feeling of being indebted they they granted it to him and he was mm -hmm. brought to iceland that does yeah. remind me actually i forgot to mention this when we were talking about the game but another sort of charming anecdote a lot of the documentary was just sort of me like smiling as like very sweet Icelandic men told stories. Oh, yeah. um, but in uh, one of my favorite stories, the same event organizer talked about how in the third game, because of Bobby's demands, uh, Spassky started to get a little frustrated with them and said that he was like, okay, I'm done. You can just have this title. I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. And the organizer said that he grabbed them both by the collars and just forced them to sit down and said, yes. you will start playing now. Uh, you know, effectively, by hook or by crook, I am making you guys play this chess game. This will not fall through, uh, which I thought was very funny. Very good. Yeah, it really makes you appreciate the Icelandic folk. Yeah. Uh, when he... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, if if you had something else about that specifically, you can. Oh okay. no, I was just going to go back to sort of his Iceland, uh, his you know return. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say it was just one other thing. I want to say this was more in reference to. Uh, his jail time he would need in America. I'm trying to remember which ones it was. I want to say it was one or two of the Russian grandmasters he had played against at one point or another said, well, if he's, if Fisher's going to have to serve time, um, you know, provided we're given a chessboard, we'll just join him in jail, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, as <laughs> yeah. sort of like a, a, like a show of support for him. So I do think it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, just another example of these people around him, even if they didn't necessarily have the most positive experiences uh, just reaching out and like saying, you know, we're going to back him. Yeah. And they respected him, even though he, at this point, he'd already gone off the deep end. I think a lot of people still respected, uh, maybe even, maybe it's not even a man who still was there, but they did respect Bobby Fisher as this like looming figure in the world. The of chess. Yeah. Um, and that's, and, and you can't deny, you can't yeah. deny the, uh, the effect he had at, Mm -hmm. I'll say, as a man who learned about chess 25 minutes ago, you cannot <laughs> deny his <laughs> Yeah, so I just have um, a couple notes, and then we can sort of wrap up. I just have a couple, like, you know, yeah. discussion questions for the class. Well, 
Um, uh, did, did you, to finish to round out his biography, he did die in Iceland in 2008, yeah. right? And yeah. I just wanted to mention, I found it very poignant that he died in the same place that his largest achievement took place, just mm-hmm. sort of alone and alienated. I found that incredibly sad, like most of this documentary. I just yeah. felt really, really bad for the guy, um, in spite of some of his more incendiary and downright evil beliefs. Yeah. Um, um, and yeah, that's really the last thing that I had to say about him is like, especially in this documentary, and I've seen other footage of him from this time in his life. He's undeniably like at this point, a very broken man, a very lonely man. Yeah. Uh, and I, you can tell he's, there's this anger in him that we talked about earlier, right? It's just sort of like yeah. seething beneath the surface and he never seems to know where to direct it. And I think the fact that he latched on to conspiracy theories is understandable, right? I do this podcast. I think he just, <laughs> he didn't find the right ones, right? And his anger, sure. instead of being directed at, And we did. Yeah, right. Yeah, we found the right ones, fortunately. You will never find us, like, blaming the Jews for anything. It's true. And, uh, yeah, I think he just sort of directed it towards the wrong people, right? Like, the Jews, the communists yeah. following him and reading his mind. Like, he, and, of course, doing that, really sadly obviously it only alienated him from the world further because even like some of his last few friends talked about how they eventually just had to cut ties because you know a lot of them were jewish right and they uh he would just suddenly break into these rants about like the evil nature of the jew and eventually you just need to walk away from something like that absolutely um and my my last real note about him before we jump into the uh you know, the last question I have about him, right, um, is uh, another thing from the documentary, actually, where Bobby uh, talked about a conversation he had with another uh, another great chess player, Larry Evans, uh, who would also write music. And he said that one day he sat there in the 60s and he was talking with him. He was like, Larry, you know, I wish I could write music like you. I, I try, but nothing comes out when I try to write music. Uh, and Larry responded, with, well, that's because you haven't lived. Um, and, you know, Bobby, mm. when he tells that anecdote, sort of laughs about it. But I think it's also on some very deep level, it's true, right? Bobby yeah. never really lived outside of chess. Um, yeah. And also, just as a side note, Larry Evans was Jewish, right? Mm. Uh, and it's just it's just a very sad story at the end of the day, I yeah. think. I think one of my takeaways from it was, uh, of all the things we could lay the blame for his fate at, aside from himself... Um, I think one we haven't mentioned was sort of like our kind of cultural drive for, I don't know if you'd call it American exceptionalism, but that sort of very grind, grind cycle, yeah. you know, yeah. for lack of a better term, uh, <laughs> where it's just like, all you would do is drill, you know, focus on chess, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, focus on your goal, reach out, work, accomplish it. And if you spend your entire time and energy focused on one thing, that is not people or like helping other people or connecting Mm -hmm. with the world around you. Yeah. History might remember you or maybe your actions or maybe one specific tournament. Um, Mm -hmm. but you'll end up in the metaphorical sense in Iceland alone, racist and sad. And, (laughs) you know, I say that sort of jokingly, but like, I think it's true when you look at the kind of lives of like, people who are inclined to pursue craft in this sense is there that seems to be a running theme of the people who don't break out from trying to be the best at something is that Mm -hmm. ultimately it's sort of a fruitless endeavor yeah and i think 
Yeah, I've sort of given my take, I think, on Bobby Fischer and why he was the way he was. Uh, Michael, to sort of close us out, uh, do you have anything more that you want to say about him or why you think he ended up going so crazy at the end of his life? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and as one completely unrelated side tangent, but I'd be uh, remiss not to mention, because it did confuse me for a long time until I actually went through the research for this, there is a difference between the game of the century and the match of the century. Um, both oh, were yeah. Yeah, they are separate done ones. by Bobby Fischer. Uh, the game of the century, though, was played against Donald Byrne, uh, American uh, international master. So this was a previous game, which sort of put him on the map nationally. And then the match of the century was the series of games he played against Spassky. So completely unrelated. Interesting. Let's get back to the point. I just had to put that out there in case anyone else no, <laughs> does you. research and they get confused because it confused the heck out of me. So um, for, yeah, I'm glad to hear that you guys kind of feel the same way that I do. Because for a while, when I'd hear these stories, again, like you kind of just pick up some of these stories about like what they were doing outside of a specific game. I was like, man, I just really don't like this Bobby Fischer character. He just, he does not seem pleasant. Um, but right. like, the more that you look into it, the more you get the feeling like, I think there is more going on here. And I feel like he might just be a little bit misunderstood. And of course, people are going to play up these sort of yeah. um, eccentric elements uh, just for the sensation yeah. of it. But, you know, I think there there is a bit of tragedy there. And it is something I think you need to approach with a level of understanding albeit with respect or disagreement. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yeah, or even, or even like forceful disagreement. I think, right. um, and not to be too philosophical, but I think unfortunately that's kind of the truth with most people, like even bad, yeah, heck, even evil people, right? Mm -hmm. Is I think some understanding is incredibly important because yeah. I, you know, unfortunately, we're all wired and, you know, chemically inclined in the same ways. Mm -hmm. So on a base level, we're all reaching out for the same things. And it's unfortunate that like a lack of these things or some sort of trauma can inform someone to go into a route where they'll be very hurtful mm -hmm. to others. Um, and I think, same, but no, yeah. no, I feel you. And I think uh, it's also just worth noting, right? A lot of very, very high level chess players throughout the years have gone a little crazy, right? Usually yeah. they don't reach the depths that Bobby did, but also most of them had this happen to them before like national cameras were a thing where like you'd be right. broadcast to the world. And I think something about chess, right? And that like, you know, like we said, those billions of possible combinations, you're staring into infinity. I think someone might've said yeah. something similar in the documentary, right? But of course that'll drive you crazy eventually. Like even just on a, even if you're approaching it just as like, a game eventually i think staring directly into like the maw of the universe like that will sort of it, even the most stable people i think could be driven a little crazy by it uh yeah. and i think it makes it all the more natural to sort of like try and reach out to find a pattern in the real world something that like matches the sort of things you can find in the game and right. if you aren't careful you might start picking up on patterns that i think aren't really there right you know like very mm -hmm. racist or anti-Semitic ones, for yeah. instance. So watch out, Michael. Yes, yeah, so yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm keeping an eye on you. <laughs> anyway, I think that's pretty much all that I have on Bobby Fischer. Yeah. We ran a little long, but I think that's okay. That's this right. is a subject worth yeah. running long on. Yeah, I think it was very fascinating. And it's only tangentially related to our kind of more esoteric uh, conspiracy <laughs> themes, but it's, it's very historically important. Yeah. 
Um, and it's very fascinating. Yeah, and that's uh, why I had I know. to dive down that Bilderberg rabbit hole when I found it. I was like, why? Hang on. <laughs> Just, you throw, throw the boys it. a bone, bone yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and I, honestly, I will say, if jokingly, I was calling it a nerd sport, but I was actually quite riveted and fascinated by the world of chess. And I, mm-hmm. I kind of, I'm, I'm interested now. I'm intrigued by, I think it's fascinating. But um, yeah. yeah, so unless there's anything else uh, Ooh, anyone I do wants have to say. One final yeah, go note. Ahead. Sorry, I forgot to mention this. Uh, Bobby Fisher co-authored a couple books on chess one of which uh, my school library happened to have and i started reading uh it's called bobby fisher teaches chess it uh for a long time was the best-selling book on chess Uh, i don't remember if it still is but it uh is it's very good it's pretty simple uh but if you like me know a little bit about chess and would like to pretend that you know more than you do uh, i do recommend (laughs) it it's uh very elegantly (laughs) written because he had two co-authors who are also very good writers um Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in it. Um, and I think that's really all that I have to say on the matter. So, Michael, I know you're not a big social media guy, but do you have anything you want to plug before we uh, wrap things up? Um, hmm. No, I'm afraid not. I don't have any. I, I did have one quote that came <laughs> to mind, uh, which I've told you before, but I feel like it's relevant. By Paul Morphy, also an American, uh, considered unofficial <laughs> master. Um, he they didn't have the official title back then or you know there weren't another guy who went crazy yeah yeah and he also did kind of go crazy uh but as he famously said the ability to play chess is the sign of a gentleman the ability of to play chess well is the sign of a wasted life um <laughs> and yeah i'll just <laughs> leave That's it a at pretty that good quote <laughs> um so uh, if if you enjoyed this episode please like comment and subscribe i don't know what i'm talking about uh please follow us on social media we're on twitter at hist esoteric and on instagram at historica esoterica because instagram is the superior platform in terms of handles we have more followers there too we have more followers there too um Oh, and some pretty sick designs have gotten posted. So yeah, run over there, check you. them out if you want to see some cool things. I was talking about mine, but yours oh, is good. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, message me if you want uh, if you want posters to print out and hang up around your local city. Yeah, please. Uh, Spread we'll that good marketing. gospel. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you can also, please, if you haven't already, rate our podcast on Spotify or uh, Apple Podcasts five stars if you liked it. If you don't like it, shut up, uh, and that's all right. Um, but yeah, without further ado, I think until next time, I will leave you with the eternal words of chess player William Hartston, which is that chess doesn't drive people mad; it keeps mad people sane. Good night. <laughs> this young man's name is Bobby Fisher, and already he is the United States chess. He's tedious, he's arrogant, he's inconsiderate. Uh, Basically, people think that there's something wrong with the man. Everybody can have impressions, but the only person who knows what Bobby Fischer is going to do is Bobby Fischer. Did you have any help? No. Did it all by yourself? Did it make people happy? Made me happy. (laughs) He had false fixed ideas of a very widening conspiracy against him. They're actually making things happen. Humans and anything possible. Paranoid psychosis. 
for the communist regime, keeping the crown was very important uh, ideologically. I think he was unable to cope with his own invincibility. He got more or less scared to sit down again in front of the board and risk losing. But only he who never plays never loses.